The first brand I started with actually was Chick-fil-A and always read so many good things about them. I knew they were this elite brand and franchise and it just intrigued me their whole model. And they were the first one I went down the path with and they were very intense. Everything was really intensive. It really was. And that company doesn't miss a beat when they go through the ride with you. Even the final interview, which I'll get into in a bit, but she even told me, she's like, you know, a lot of people don't even get to this point. So she's like, you should pat yourself for that. And I was like, well, yeah, I had no idea. I just like Chick-fil-A because I loved the brand and I knew how solid it was. And I knew they had this amazing elite name. So it was an 18 month process for me when I started it. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, today on the show we have Mike Kelly. Mike started out in the franchise world by going through an 18 month process with Chick-fil-A, which he ultimately bowed out of. Then he bought a senior care franchise, which he later sold. And now he owns 10 Sylvan Learning Centers and works about 15 to 20 hours per week. This is an awesome conversation about multiple brands and franchise industries that you're going to learn a ton from. Hope you enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I mean, so you own 10 Sylvan Learning Centers today, but can you just kind of bring us back to the beginning from where this started? You know, what were you doing before you first even were looking at franchises? Yeah, so I originally came from the corporate world. I worked for uh, Wells Fargo for a number of years. And yeah, I worked my way up through the business banking world and the corporate world just sucked the soul out of me. And, you know, I went in every day, did the nine to five thing, did the banker's hours. And to be honest, it sucked the soul out of me. So I was looking for something more, something I could really sink my teeth into. And I got involved. Um, my wife has a family uh, jewelry business and I got involved with them and they said, hey, come on over. We could use some smart heads and something different. We're a small family business and I'm sure we could utilize you. So I came over there and it got a taste of the corporate world. And then I got a taste of the small family business dynamic. And that really kind of shaped my experiences and my skill set, to be honest, and ultimately led us to the franchise side to look for something bigger and to scale. So my roots are the corporate world and then right down to small family business. And when did you decide to go franchise versus, you know, your own jewelry business? Did you ever think, oh, like, okay, I love this small business ownership thing, but let me go start my own versus buy into a franchise? Yeah. So five years ago, this is when it all started on the franchise side. And we were at the point where we were like, do we want to scale the jewelry business or do we want to look at something on the franchise side where we don't have to reinvent the wheel and it already has its own systems and processes and brand? And what I landed on is I loved, we're an hour north of Minneapolis in a town called St. Cloud. I loved Minneapolis because it's this huge market and I knew it had this ability to scale multiple centers or locations. And I've always wanted to do business in Minneapolis. So that's where I started looking for franchise opportunities an established brand and systems and processes so I didn't have to reinvent the wheel and something that I could scale in Minneapolis. And that's how I got involved. And I just started interviewing franchises and diving into that whole world. 
And what brand did you first start with? The first brand I started with actually was Chick-fil-A. You know, I've always read so many good things about them. I knew they were this elite brand and franchise, and it just intrigued me their whole model. And they were the first one I went down the path with, and they were very intense. Everything was really intensive. It really was. And that company doesn't miss a beat when they go through the ride with you. So that was my first forte. So your very first due diligence process with any franchise brand was Chick-fil-A. It was. Yep, it was. Holy crap. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I mean... If anyone's listening to this and doesn't know, I mean, Chick-fil-A gets today around like 60,000 applications a year. They only accept 80 to 100 of them, which is like a 0.13% acceptance rate. Statistically speaking, you have a better chance of getting into Harvard, Stanford, the Secret Service, you name it. Like Chick-fil-A is that hard to get into. And it's because of this unique model where they only require a $10,000 franchise fee and effectively they pay for everything else. So it is a far lower barrier to entry financially speaking, but they take a lot more than your average franchise. You know, it's like 15% of the revenue and 50% of the profits, but their average location not located in a mall was about 8 million in 2021, which is a ridiculous average unit volume. So Gamble over about Chick-fil-A, but Mike, how long was the process from initial inquiry to when you, I guess, did you bow out or did you, did you not make the cut? What happened? Well, and it's funny that you mentioned all that. And I guess that makes me feel better about going through the process. I was like, <laughs> dang, even the final interview, which I'll get into in a bit, but she even told me, she's like, you know, a lot of people don't even get to this point. So she's like, you should pat yourself for that. And I was like, well, yeah, I had no idea. I just like Chick-fil-A because I loved the brand and I knew how solid it was. And I knew they had this amazing elite name. So it was an 18 month process for me when I started it. You know, I reached out pretty wet behind the ears with it. And it started off as, you know, basically you have to submit these. Back then it was questionnaires and letters and they wanted to really know who you were from a character side and why you wanted to do this and what you were about. And then that wasn't even a human interaction yet. That was just like some digital writing. And then that was the first stage. And then I remember then it was a numerous interviews over the phone. And it was through some of their different leadership teams that they have on the franchise side at the time. And again, they're picking your brain about who you are. What is your experience? Why do you want to do this? And after those interviews, then it went to some deeper video style interviews where they could really get a feel for who I was and person to person type thing. And and it finally got down to a point where this all went back to forth, back and forth for the longest time. And there were some delays in there on my end just because things were busy. But it got to the point where I made it to the final stage that they said was they invite you down to their offices in Atlanta. And she's like, we would like to extend that opportunity for you. We really liked from where you were from stage one to here. And we feel like you'd be a really good potential fit. So they invited me down. But before they invited me down, they scheduled one more interview. And it was with some of their leadership team. And we all got on the phone. And they basically, they wanted to narrow down some final details of they wanted to press me a little bit more on my setup running the Chick-fil-A. Because one of the issues was, is I wasn't going to be there 60 hours a week. They want someone that is going to live, breathe, and, you know, sweat Chick-fil-A every day, every week, every month. And my philosophy was going to be a little less hands-off, bringing in smart people, not working 60 hours a week. I was going to be more of a part-time owner, if you want to put it that way. So ultimately what happened is we ended up 
I didn't go down for the interview because I was just honest with him. I said, look, I'm not going to be doing the 60 hours a week and working to the bone like that. That's not my philosophy or what I'm, I want. So I think I'm going to bow out and pass this opportunity on to someone that's going to be full in on it. And they really respected that. And we just parted ways and it ended up being the best for both of us. I know it did. So, I mean, did that come up at all during like before that? Cause I mean, from the outside, right. All the press you see on Chick-fil-A is that that's like their biggest requirement is that their operators have to be in the store six days a week when they're open, basically. So did that come up at all? And like, maybe did they kind of leave the window of hope open? We're like, Hey, like, yeah, we might give you that option where you don't have to actually be in the store all the time. That's exactly what they did. I thought a lot about that afterwards. And I was like, well, why didn't we approach this sooner? But they were definitely leaving that window open. And they were also considering letting me doing it. So it was like this really unique thing where like, I think they like some of the things that I was bringing to the table and this town and community. And I know it really well. I've grown up. I'm born here. I had a ton of connections here. And so they liked that aspect of it. So they were leaving a little bit of a window open. So to this day, it's opened up and we've had an amazing family couple that owns it. And I do think it's better off for them and us. So that's incredible. So you bowed out after 18 months. And do you know how many candidates that started with does Chick-fil-A break it out by a territory? Did they like kind of focus in, all right, we're going to take Minneapolis candidates now? Yeah. So it ended up the lady, I don't remember her name, but she told me, she's like, you know, and she said something like they take the nation when they do this, but it was something like over 10,000 candidates and they were inviting three of us down to Atlanta. And at that point, it started to hit me a little bit. I was like, well, damn, I'm like 10,000 to three, like three out of 10,000. Yeah, it hit me a little more. I was like, well, maybe I should be really second thinking this. But ultimately, I came back to square one where I was like, you know what, it's just best. So but yeah, three of us down to Atlanta. I was like, all right, that's legit. You know? (laughs) Yeah, you're telling me. Holy crap. And all right. So so you know, the group that owns it in Minneapolis and store seems to be doing well and all that. So no, it was the one based in St. Cloud now. And yeah, they seem to be doing really well. They're happy. And again, they live and breathe Chick-fil-A. So that's how it should be. It's not for everyone, man. Like I see the numbers and they just get bigger and bigger every year. I mean, eight million is ridiculous in revenue. And even with how much Chick-fil-A is taking, which again, 50% of the profits and 15% of the revenue, but like still franchise operators are definitely making at least 300 grand plus probably, which is insane. How cool is it that they build out the space and hand you the keys and you pay what, 10,000 or whatever, and then you run it. It's awesome. I mean, I totally get that. I prefer the chaos of the other stuff. So <laughs> well, I hear you. But I mean, did they give you any inclination? If what if you gave me options, say, hey, I work Monday through Friday, but Saturdays, I'm going to have like a high level manager take over because I don't want to work weekends. Like, do you know if that's possible? At the time, it wasn't. I don't know if they changed their tune on that. But at the time, they were really dead set on we want you there and your eyes on it. They didn't put an hours behind it, but they wanted someone that was beyond full time. Damn. I mean, what about vacation and stuff? <laughs> no, they don't even get into that. They basically want you living and breathing it, dude. It's, I got the vibe, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, I get it. I mean, they're putting all their money in it, so I get it, totally. I can't say anything. I mean, like, it's working. The model is clearly working. They destroy every fast food chain or franchise in average unit volume. Like, it's not even close. And the top location last year did like 18 million in revenue which is insane. I wish in an outburger would do something like that. I think they could give them a run for their money, but I know they got their whole thing going on over there. So, Yeah, yeah. I actually, I just wrote about that. It's funny. Yeah, they're kind of like the burger version of Chick-fil-A. They, they, they do about like four and a half million average unit volume from like their reports, but it, you can't confirm it, right? Because they're not 
they're private and they're not a franchise. There's no like real, you need like an inside source, but that's what's been reported. That was cool to hear about, but I guess moving past that. So you spent 18 months just with Chick-fil-A. Yeah. What happens next after you cross that off the list? Well, the thing is that really built up my confidence in the franchise system because I got to learn really what an FTD was. I got to go through the process, the interview, discovery, and I got to really understand it. So then when I started interviewing other franchisors, it was like I really was confident going into the process of what to ask and what to look for. And this time I was really upfront with them when I'd have the conversation like, look, I'm not going to be your 60 hour a week guy. I'm a guy that loves to build teams of smart people and I'll make sure that we're successful. But this is the way that I'm looking to do it. So I would have that conversation up front more. That's what really what I learned off of it. And that really helped going forward as I was interviewing some of those other franchisors. After Chick-fil-A, it was pizza. I don't know why I was on a food kick. I don't know food, <laughs> don't love food, but it's just some of the things that popped up that you could scale. Like uh, I looked at a couple pizza franchises and they all wanted to be like, hey, sign on. We want you to open up 10 of them. And you know they were all about scale. They wanted to get into the markets fast. And I ultimately got away from food is the long story short there and made a decision with the team and I that we were going to stay away from food. So that's kind of how that the food ended. Was it like the margins that scared you or because I, I see that a lot, right? Food concepts are like from a consumer perspective, the most popular, but oftentimes the investments are really high and the margins aren't nearly as high as you could get in other concepts. Margins are thin and you got to play the volume game and then you're just dealing with people's food. And, you know, ultimately it was just a simple thing like that. People are so picky about their food. And <laughs> I was like, you know, I just don't want to go down that path. And I liked some of it. You know, I loved it's, the one I looked at. It had a pizza concept and then it also had a bar inside. So I love that aspect of you could have a bar and liquor service and then pizza. So, oh, was it a mellow mushroom? Uh, no, it was called your pie. Oh, interesting. Okay. But that sounded like a mellow mushroom. We had a franchisee on the show from that and there's a lot of them right there is there's a lot of them now yeah well it's funny that you're right i mean like especially when i write something on twitter about say like a big franchise concept that's food related like i did like a twitter thread on crumble and recently even in and out and regardless of how successful the brand is how many locations they have whatever there's always people in the comments saying oh their food is disgusting like who would ever go there? and i'm like dude they have hundreds or if not thousands of locations and they're like a beloved brand. Clearly a lot of people like them, but you're right, man. Some people are just so picky. So that's just something I guess food operators got to deal with. It's like the haters. There's always going to be haters. And it's probably the decision I feel the best about is staying away from food. I know there's people that are really good at it and I'm going to let them have it. So it's a tough one. Now, those guys are saints, man. People that dive into that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I've noticed food franchisees in particular, they stick to food. You know, I've had other people on the show where they own fitness concepts, they own wellness concepts, and maybe educate, like it'll be a mix. But food operators rarely go out of food. Yeah, I believe it. So you give up on food, and what's the franchise you ended up with, and when, why'd you kind of go with that direction? Well, and I actually ended up with two after that. I got really aggressive, and I ended up in the senior care space for a while, and that was a franchise, Senior Helpers, I was with for a little while. I ultimately did sell that one off just because it was a time constraint, but... I own that one for a couple years, but I actually bought Senior Helpers and Sylvan, the franchise at the same time. So it was a wild, chaotic ride. <laughs> I just like both brands and I love the diversification of it. And so that's why I ended up with both. But I ultimately ended up with Sylvan because for me, my goal was I'm looking for something, a mission and profit. What can I generate a good profit with and scale? And then what can I get behind with a mission side? And it was the kids aspect, to be honest. I didn't have kids at the time, but I had kids around the same time that I looked at Sylvan. 
And I understood what these parents were coming from, that you would do anything for your kids. Because I started interviewing some of the parents for Sylvan before I bought Sylvan. And I was like, what do you love about Sylvan here? Why are you a customer? And their stories were unbelievable. Like these parents are distraught. They're crying. They're, my child was behind in math or reading and they needed help. And I was like, I get it. Like they would do anything for their kids. And Sylvan was providing it for them. And I had a chance to acquire five locations at the time. And it just, it kind of all meshed together. It was this beautiful thing. And I totally understood where these parents were coming from. So you bought a senior care franchise and then also acquired five at once for Sylvan? I bought the senior care franchise. I bought the Minnesota market. It was three big territories that included all basically Minneapolis. And that's a non-brick and mortar franchise, right? That's like placing senior care helpers, basically. I'm sure there's an industry term for that job. Yep. In-home senior care is really what it's referred to. So you're, you're providing like assistance in people's homes. And so, yeah, it's basically a non-brick and mortar. So... What would you, because I'm curious, I find the non-brick and mortar type businesses, whether it's like dog training or there's even like in-home exercise workouts, you send a trainer to a house, like there's a bunch of different forms of the you know, home services, you know, whatever the case is, it's easier in a way to generate cash flow and the investments seem to be lower, but I find they're less scalable. So I'm curious for your feedback. Did you kind of see that where it was like, Increasing revenue is always just you had to increase staff and, and other aspects. Yeah, and I think you hit that right on the head. And it was the scaling factor that I ultimately didn't love about it. And like the Sylvan side, I can scale brick and mortar locations, but the senior business, you can't. You're scaling through services and people, which is a lot more difficult. And especially in that industry, which is really right now at its peak in terms of chaos, staffing and it's growing and everyone's, you know, aging in place. So that it was really chaotic and there's a ton of competition in that market. So the reality is it's a lot more difficult to scale, takes more time, more money and more effort. And I just made the decision to not put all that into it. It's tough. Um, it was really tough. Yeah, it was one. Of, it was a really big learning for me and it's something that I look back on and learned a lot from. But it's yeah, it's a different space, man. Absolutely. You always see the brick and mortar operators, right? Like those are the ones who get to the biggest scale. So I think you made the right decision there. The biggest franchisee I've had on the show is Jamie Weeks, who owned 140 Orange Theories. But like, I've never met anyone who owns even close to 100 territories of a non-brick-and-mortar brand. So, so there's a reason for that. That was a great episode. I encourage everyone <laughs> to listen to that. That was good. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. So you dive into Sylvan. Five at once was, I mean, I know you had had experience operating that jewelry store, and I think you guys still have it. But what was it like to just all of a sudden have five Sylvans under your belt? Yeah. And I knew it was going to be chaos and I thrive on the chaos. And so we acquired five at once. And it, for a while, it was just myself, but I brought a friend in. His name is Emmanuel and he's a good friend of mine. And he was working for Verizon corporate. And I said, Emmanuel, I'm going to buy these five. Let's do this together. I want you to be the area manager, the area director of them. I'll train you. We'll do it together. And so I brought him on simultaneously. So we buy the five. I do bring him on as the manager. And I remember day one, like it was yesterday, we go out and we're visiting all five locations. And it was wild, man, to be honest, because I don't have any education experience. Yeah, I've run a jewelry store and I've gone through some franchises and some other, but it, this is a different ball of wax. So you got five different locations. You got five different managers. Each location has 20 teachers. So you got a bunch of staff you got to get to know now. And 
you got to learn all the systems and processes. You had the old owner who had their way, and then you got new ownership. So you're basically just spending the first six months learning every nook and cranny that you can and hanging on for the ride. It was a roller coaster, but part of how we got through it was just enjoying it and working together to enjoy it and just diving in day by day and understanding it, all the little minutiae of running those the centers. So day by day in the hard work. And how'd you, uh, I mean, I kind of glossed over this financing, you know, did you leverage like some seller financing to acquire these locations? Cause five at a clip, that's, you know, it's probably not a small amount of money. No, and it wasn't. And the other thing that they have with it too, is the Sylvans come with some receivables on the books. Cause your people basically pay for the tutoring up front, and then they use it over a six to nine month period. So there was some complexities there with the financing, to be honest. So it was a mix of traditional financing, SBA financing, and then working with the owners. So there were some complexities there and it's there was a lot to it. It's always good for people to hear that you could minimize the cash up front where before you discover financing, everything seems impossible to attain because it's you just think of it in pure dollar terms. But the reality is you don't need a pile of cash to, to get these deals done. You know, that's actually a great point. And I remember when I was first looking, I was like, well, my God, I'm going to have to save up all this money and how am I going to be able to... But the reality is, is yes, you have the SBA first off is amazing in general. If people don't know about that, you really got to dive into the SBA side and there's just so many resources that are actually free. But beyond that, don't be afraid to ask the sellers to get creative. Sellers, there's a lot of ways to get creative, whether it's seller owner financing or helping out with the down payment and spreading that out, or there is a lot of options. You just can't be afraid to ask them for it and work with them on it. A lot of people are willing to do it. You'd be really surprised. So definitely. Yeah, I've heard they're looking to get it into the hands of someone who's going to do a good job with it. So that all makes sense. When was that five unit acquisition? How many years ago was that? So that was May of 2018. And so you went from acquiring five to getting another five since May 2018. Were those also acquired or did you build them? Yeah. So we basically acquired another three and then built two of our own. So over that time, and yeah, I guess time does fly. It's been four years now. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So acquired five and then over the next four years and even throw COVID in there, which is crazy to think about too. But yeah, another three more. And then we did two of our own. So I remember the last guest talking a little bit about acquisition versus starting new. And I'm totally on the board of acquiring versus starting new. That's totally been a lot easier. I've learned. So it's a lot easier to scale up. Yeah. Is it just ramping up for a new location? Just, is it just the time and the cash flow that you got to, you know, shell out operationally as you're ramping up? Well, it's that too. Like we just actually, we just opened two new locations this past spring and yeah, that's exactly it. The ramp up period is, you know, you plan for that, but the other part is the actual opening you got. It's just a cluster of time and money as well. Like now I got to pull my team in to help open up two new locations. So now their time is spent on that versus managing the other items. Plus you got the money and sometimes you don't even think about some of that. You got to still stock it. You got to Maybe you're moving a location or moving items. Now you got to pay movers and you got to put signage up and you got to build it out and you got to do all these things just to open up a new location. And then you got to support it until cash flows for three, six or nine months. So it is, there's a ton to it. But if you don't have the ability to acquire one or if it's a new market, that's really good. You got to go into it. And that's why we did it. We went into two markets that I know have the families and have the income. So it was something we just had to do. Buying versus building is, is just always an interesting discussion. But I'm starting to, especially with these more established brands like a Sylvan, where 
if they've been around for a while, I'm starting to lean towards the, the acquisition route just seems to be the way to go. On some of these franchises too, they have really aggressive growth plans. So for us, for instance, Sylvan, they're still requiring us to open up new locations. So part of me taking on Minnesota was they said, hey, you know, we still want, these are some of the cities that we want you to look at. And there's no centers in there. So, I, you know, so a lot of times owners don't even have the option to just say, I want to acquire. I still have to look at both for my tenure with Sylvan, which is fine. I agreed to that. But assuming they ramp up, I mean, you'll be sitting on a very nice portfolio of businesses <laughs> at the uh, end of the day there. How do you think about it competitively? Like versus, uh, you know, we had Mathnasium franchises on a few episodes ago. There are obviously like that's a concept that's saying, hey, we're going to help you get better at math, but we're not doing anything else. You know, Sylvan, right, does kind of everything, right? Reading, writing, college prep. So how, how does it fit in versus those other educational concepts? You know, one of the pioneers in it, and they just celebrated their 40 year a few years ago. 40 years in the industry is unbelievable. But their heydays were the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. And Sylvan was one of the only premier ones on the scene that was doing custom individualized tutoring like that and part of where they got their brand built too is that's when tv advertising was huge and sylvan pounded the tv advertising and commercials and that really put them on the map that was their heyday that's when the centers were doing buku revenue and customers were just streaming through every single week and month and then the competitors started to catch on like okay obviously there's an industry here someone's making it so that's when you started to see some of them pop up mathnasium and kumon and some of the individual ones and they're smart because they've taken they say okay sylvan does offer everything math reading writing and stem they offered uh, some paper and then some digitally on the ipad so some of the competitors started to, to poke through and say okay we're gonna try just math like mathnasium or Kumon, which uses a lot of paper-based. So they started to kind of poke holes. So the industry has matured since then, and that's where it's gotten to. So, like, no longer are you going to be looking at a 10% growth. Like, in this industry, if you're looking at 3 to 5%, you're really happy with that because of the competition that you mentioned. So, and for us, we are always one of the higher-priced tutoring services, but we also have the 40-year experience and some of the guarantees behind it to allow for that, to be honest. It's definitely probably, I'm trying to think of a, I don't know if there's a concept that has kind of a history that Sylvan does. You know, even like Mathnasium, it was only founded in 2003. So Sylvan was running commercials well, prior decades before that. But yeah, it's interesting. Just like Sylvan could be, I'm not making assumptions or anything, but I just mean, let's just say Sylvan's better at even the math tutoring within their other curriculums. But just the sheer fact that a Mathnasium pops up and other competitors, like it just naturally eats into market share. So I've been watching that in a few other spaces, specifically Crumble Cookies has absolutely crushed it. But now I'm starting to see these cookie franchises pop up. <laughs> and like, even if they're not as good as Crumble, I just think naturally Crumble's, it's their growth and success will come back down probably to earth a little bit, just because it's brick and mortar. If it's another cookie concepts exists, you know, you're going to walk into it. Well, and that's why I keep a close eye on those battles that you talk about, whether it doesn't have to be tutored, but I keep a close eye on those battles because what does the franchisor and the franchisee do? How do they pivot their costs? How do they pivot their brand and what they say and what they do? And because Sylvan's in the same boat. So it's really interesting, like how are you going to take on that battle? So I love that you bring that up. How do you think about like the support the franchisor provides? Because I mean, between a lengthy process with Chick-fil-A, a senior care franchise brand, and Sylvan, I mean, you've got kind of three franchisors that you have been intimately familiar with at one point. I mean, what does Sylvan do that like you really love? 
and that you think is like a differentiator from a service aspect? I, I'm always careful to butter them up because we have a really good relationship and I'm hard on them. But <laughs> And I don't love buttering them up, but the reality is, is they are probably some of the best support that I've ever have been involved with. The amount of resources that they give you is unbelievable. And then beyond the resources, it's the, actually the human touch. And it's not just your franchise business consultant that's helped you. It's people in their corporate office, their marketing teams, their operation teams, and they're all just available to you. And they all get the mission of what you're trying to do and operate and grow a center. So again, I don't love to butter them up, but I definitely give them an A plus in support. How often do you talk to them? I'm more just trying to give people a picture and it obviously varies from brand to brand, but like are you on weekly calls with them? Do you only speak to them when you need them? You know, like how, how does that whole thing work? Yeah. And in the beginning, because of the chaos, it was probably every other day. And then it got to a weekly and then it got to monthly. And then it got to the point where I was like, let's just set up something quarterly. And recently I've gotten back to just a monthly touch point. You know, that's what works for me and my team. But anyone else that is in it, I would 100% recommend a weekly touch point until you get really comfortable with what you're doing. It seems to be the the route most franchises take, where especially like a new franchisee, they'll, a franchisor will do some type of like intentional support for the first quarter, at least like on a weekly basis to make sure everything's going smoothly. I require my team to touch base with them weekly. Again, I'm more passive in it. So I have a couple that I've hired in and that have run it and I require them to do it weekly. So. And speaking of a staff, I mean, with 10 locations, what's like a general hierarchy you have? And I've noticed most multi-unit operators across any industry, it's basically like one manager per location. And once you have a cluster of stores, so like you bought five right away. So that would have qualified to me as a cluster where you have like a area director who oversees a group of managers. And then you're the one at the top. You know, I remember listening last week and I, you know, I remember him talking a little bit about specialists and kind of having it to me that it was a little too convoluted i'm i'm a fan of the structure the military type structure the hierarchies and business has been done that way very successfully so that's the way we keep it in yeah each of our stores has a manager and then underneath them it could be an assistant and then their lead teachers and then above that yeah we operate with two area managers one that does operations one that does sales and they work together to support the team and that works really well for us and it's been successful so the sales manager and the ops manager or the area managers they're overseeing all 10 locations correct so and, and they'll have some people underneath them that support them maybe with certain parts of operations or certain part of sales but yeah that's what we found has worked best and supported the team and our sales how have you thought about when you do make those hires you know like those are pretty strategic hires i found that at times and i you're a little unique most people don't buy five at once but um the cash flow has to be able to support the ability to hire that manager, which then frees up more of your time. So did you have a number in mind where it's like, okay, once my stores are doing this much, I can finally hire that person and free up a lot of my time? Yeah, I can tell you've been doing this well because that's really intuitive right there. So that's that's smart, <laughs> man. Because to be honest, in the beginning, we didn't have the cash flow or the money to be making some of these hires. So it had to come from two areas. We were not profitable for a while and I had to take it from some of my other companies. It was a bet basically like, okay, we're going to hire on some smart people and set up some smart bonus plans and comps and this will pay off in the future. And so for the first few years, it was, hey, we're not making money, but I had to really be patient and saying we're trying to build up a team here. And 
that's kind of where my strength comes in is in building teams. And I can say to this day that we've gotten an awesome team. So it's paid off. And were you basing sort of that when you made that bet of saying, hey, like these locations are going to improve. We're going to be able to support this in the future. Were you basing that off of like, say, what you learned in validation during the process from other franchisees and what they're earning or whatever was in the FDD? You know, did you have some like target revenue goal that you had to like get to? I will always ask for mentorship and help. I'm never one that thinks I know it all. So one of the first things I did in the first two years is I started going out to the other owners around the U.S. and I would pick their brains on the really successful ones, the ones that own multiple locations and that were doing a lot of revenue. And I deep dived each single one of them, what they did, and I just pulled out some commonalities. And that's what I've worked to build the last few years and I'm mimicking those. Because why reinvent the wheel? Like, there's no need to do that. And, you know, they all had some commonalities and it was how they set up their centers, what they did with their teams, how they paid them. And that's what I'm looking to, to mimic a little bit and replicate. So, yeah, I said this on a recent podcast, and I think that's the number one thing that if, if I'm a new franchisee, what I would do is find the top performers and try to become their friend, Like <laughs> figure out what they're doing, how they're doing it, get their advice. You can learn a lot that way as a new franchisee. But I think even better, like if assuming you put it into practice and you become one of, also one of the top franchisees, I've seen that like franchisees then get a reputation within their brand system. And the ones who are focused on acquiring more and building more and owning more, I mean, then they become like the de facto go-to person where it's like, hey, like I'm looking to get out. Do you want to acquire my store? I know you, you do a killer job. Well said, man. And look, it, when I remember there was four or five groups that I started reaching out to and I was like, oh, they're not going to want to take the time. They don't care. about, And they couldn't have been more accommodating. They're like, let's jump on a call. You want to fly out? It was awesome. And they're just so gracious with their time. And it's been a really good culture, to be honest. That's fantastic. In a way, right? It's like you have a free business consultant for, for, for your brand. You're exactly right. Owning a non-franchise business, I wish I had that in the jewelry business. We don't really have. That'd be awesome to lean on. You got to figure it out for yourself. So yeah, man, it's good. That's awesome. And looking kind of ahead, I mean, do you have like an end goal in terms of is it capital? Like, you know, you want a certain unit count for a certain revenue or is it lifestyle? Like you have a lifestyle goal that you're looking to get to as far as how much you have to work while still maintaining a certain quality of living? You know, what's your thoughts? Probably a bit of an odd answer, but it is the truth. And I really enjoy seeing my team prosper. And I wouldn't have even done 10 had it not been for my team because I was happy with kind of what we had going on. But they have expressed interest in wanting more out of their career, more out of scale, more pay, and some ownership potential. So the future for the next three to five years, we're going to scale up. It'll probably be somewhere around 15 or 16 centers, and I'll invite some of that executive team into some ownership in some facet or way so that they can share in the pie. And then we'll grow this up to 15 or 16. Could potentially be a couple more than that. So I would say the cap would be 18 from what I can tell right now. But that's kind of what the futures hold. That's what we're steaming towards. If I can build that up, plus then bring them into some ownership, that's really satisfying to me. So that's my goal. Yeah, I have noticed that as well, where I mean, it's just a good way to incentivize people to stick around, helps you grow, right? It seems to be a win-win for everyone. Well, especially in the staffing market right now. I mean, everyone's hopping ship and the grass is greener and it's just, it's unbelievable right now what's going on. It's crazy. So yeah, things like that make a big difference. And Mike, so how many hours would you say on average are you putting in a week? You know, you own 10 locations, you've built up this staff to kind of run these businesses for you. So how many hours a week do you, would you say you're putting in? 
Yeah, I mean, it's of that type of hours, 15 to 20 hours is what's needed to really make sure that we're staying on track and I have my hands on the wheel and eyes on what's going on. So 15 to 20 hours gets the job done and puts it in the people that need to be doing it. So you bought the locations, you know, you first entered into the Sylvan system in 2018. I'm sure in the beginning you were working way more hours. You know, when would you say you got to kind of this lifestyle schedule? To be honest, it was probably shortly around COVID time, to be honest, kind of right in that mix, right before COVID and then soon after. It's when we finally got people in the right lanes and the right seats. That's the best way I can put it. Because once you do that, that's the goal. That was always my goal and philosophy. Put smart people in the right lanes and the right seats and let them do their thing. You got some free time on your hands. Do you uh, you have like a hobby? I know we were talking before we recorded about uh, <laughs> potentially ice fishing, but you know, I love to hear kind of what people do once they have that free time. Because a lot of people dream about getting it, but you know, you, you have it. Yeah, I do. You know, I've been sinking my teeth into real estate business. We just bought our first rental property. That's been really fun for me. My wife and I do that together. And then, yeah, spending time with my wife is a big part of it. And I have two young girls, so spending family time. Between those three things, I mean, what more could you want out of life? That's like, you know, I'm never going to take that for granted. That's perfect. That's the dream, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Look, this was great, Mike. I uh, learned a lot about a few different brands, so I thought that was fun. <laughs> a lot of balls. Yeah, exactly. If there's uh, anywhere online that people can follow you or maybe want to reach out and learn more about, do you have a Twitter profile or LinkedIn that you'd recommend? Yeah, I have a lot of good conversations with people on LinkedIn. Mike Kelly can search me out on there and you know it'll pull up jf cruz our jewelry business and then sylvan learning and twitter it's all day mk and i love having conversations with people i never understand when people shut down their profiles to not have combos i don't understand that so my is always open i love exchanging information and that's how it should be to me so i completely agree there's a lot you can get out of those platforms so that's how i met you (laughs) exactly that's how we're having this conversation so uh, prime example. Um, but all right, man. So we'll uh, we'll plug those links in the show notes. So if anyone wants to, you know, request or, or follow Mike, you can do that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, thanks again, man. This was a great conversation. We'll talk soon. Thanks for all you do, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.